This is ContraZoom, a live in limbo production. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault, and today uh, I'll be talking about the movie Blade Runner 2049, the sequel to the classic sci-fi movie also conveniently named Blade Runner. Uh, this new one is directed by Denis Villeneuve, the Canadian filmmaker. And uh, I am joined once again by uh, my good friend Sammy Felchenfeld. How are you doing today, Sammy? I am well. How are you? I am great. Recovering from a cold a little bit, so my voice is still a little bit hoarse. But That's okay. I think I'm on my way into a cold, so there we go. Oh, that's the worst. <laughs> you know, when you know it's coming and there's nothing you could do to stop it, it's true. <laughs> um, all right. Like I said, at this, the top there, we're going to talk about Blade Runner 2049. It's been out for over a month now. By the time we are recording this, this is November 12th. It's going to come out later in the week. Um, this movie's been out. If you haven't seen it by now, I don't know why you're really listening to this, but there is going to be talk about not, I don't want to call it spoilers. We're going to just talk about the whole plot, which includes things that might be considered spoilers, which might include the ending. We're just going to kind of see where the conversation takes us, but there is nothing that is going to be off limits. Um, and if we have a point that we want to make, we will use the appropriate, uh, descriptors to describe what, what was happening at that point. So. If you haven't seen it yet, turn it off now and come back after you see it. But for those that have seen it, uh, you had just came out of the theaters from it on Friday, a couple days, two days ago. I've, I saw it a few weeks ago, so you're, it's a little more fresh in your memory. And I, I thought it was interesting how you messaged me afterwards and you said you needed some time to process it. And I felt the exact same way. What was your, what, what, what did you need to process in order to have a feeling about it afterwards? To be honest, I think the first thing that's, that struck me was that I hadn't seen a film in theaters like this. I haven't seen a modern film like this in probably 10 years or more. Um, and that I think the biggest thing about that is the pace um, and kind of the, the – the, there are a lot of movies now, um, you don't see a character think. You sort of go to the next thing and they do another thing. And there's a lot of – not necessarily action in terms of explosions and fighting, but just actual people doing stuff. This was a movie much like the first one where – it's atmosphere and it's it's not world building, but it's being in that world and kind of just getting a sense of it. So I had to think through all the pieces because there were moments throughout the film where I was able to think and I was able to think back on things that had happened, try to think about things that were coming. Um, so I think it was it was great because I was able to come out of it and be like, OK, I need to think about everything that happened and sort of rebuild my interaction with it. Um over time instead of coming out of i just came out of thor which i absolutely loved but i know exactly what it was and everything was fairly not straightforward but as straightforward as things go um so it was a nice experience um especially because it is it is blade runner 20.9 is a very very long movie um so i needed i needed a bit of that that space <laughs> yeah i i agree i came out of it and i wanted to say i really liked it but at the same time, I was a little hesitant to, to sort of jump on that ship right away because there were some things that I kind of 
uh, felt I needed to wrestle with a little bit. I wasn't sure if I was going to overhype it or underhype it. So I kind of left my opinion pretty neutral when I came out of it. I was like, oh yeah, that was all right. And then uh, it took me a couple of days of, of digesting it before I could come to a conclusion. And while by the sounds of it, I think you liked it a lot more than I did. I I did enjoy it. I, I think there was a lot to love. I definitely think there was some stuff that also really didn't work that maybe uh, hindered the movie more to me than it clearly did to you. Yeah, I I will go so far as to say this is one of my favorite movies of the year, um, and I I did really like it. I also saw a lot of its faults for what they were, but I think going into that, I was just sort of like, okay, I, I know what to expect. And it, it did, it did exceed my expectations in some ways. Um, but I'm also, I'm like, you know me, I like, I, as I've mentioned numerous times, I don't always like great movies, but I, I can find a lot to like in, in a lot of different movies. But this, this was definitely really high up there for me, especially this year. That's good. Yeah. Um, so I guess then, you know, we can kind of talk a bit about the plot now. This movie takes place, what, 30 years after the original? Yeah, it's 30 years. Okay, so it's 30 years after the original, and we're kind of left up to to see where this world has kind of turned into. And I think... I think they did a really great job sort of continuing the feeling, but also really expanding uh, the way the world was. We're going to talk a bit more in depth later about the actual set design. But as far as, you know, world building, I think there was a lot of similarities between this and the original and then taking it the next step further by you know, showing you the noodle shop and then also showing you what was going on next door to the noodle shop. So you really got to feel of, of where these characters lived. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's, um, I just, I, I have to, I, it's just, it's so rare to see a movie. And I think this is partially, partially Villeneuve, um, possibly being absolutely obsessed with the first movie and also just understanding what it means to, to do it's, this is exactly retro futurism in its finest. You see all these logos, of companies that some of them don't even exist anymore because this was what Ridley Scott believed 2019 would look like for the first movie in 1982, I believe it is. Uh, yeah, 1982. So they just, instead of, and again, some sequels do this where they sort of remake, um, remake what the, what the further future looks like. And I think Star Trek, all the Star Trek TV shows are kind of the biggest problems, biggest, um, people who do this do this wrong but that's a whole other conversation um so i appreciated that he just it still had a bit of a grimy 80s feel even though it's 30 years in our future now so it's just it's very much its own its own thing and it just it i just looked it looked great all the pieces fit fit from a from a visual standpoint now one of the things i thought were was a little bit interesting is all through the marketing campaign they sort of hyped it up as being a gosling and harrison ford movie and you're what an hour and a half almost two hours into the movie before you actually finally see harrison ford which i thought was pretty interesting that they would hold off showing him for so long uh did you feel that it was you know uh, worth the wait or do you think they maybe took too long to get to his side of the story or what um i think that uh i i only noticed after about an hour and a half i didn't really care because i i was in it for blade runner 2049 as it is and i'm a huge fan of um i'm a huge fan of uh ryan gosling with the exception of 
a certain movie last year that I won't mention. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, but I checked; it was just over the two-hour mark when when Harrison Ford appeared on the screen. But I, I, I agree that that I found it strange they marketed it that way. But I was not at all surprised. I did not think that he was going to be in a majority of the movie anyway. I think he. I honestly think, and it's exactly what I what they did in the plot. He's uh, he's just a, a small piece of Kay's story in a way, um, which obviously not going into too much in the plot details. I really do think that it was sort of a uh, sort of a I don't want to say it this way, but if, I think they could have made this movie without him. Like if he didn't want to do it, and it would have still been great. Um, and it's just better that he was in it. Yeah, they 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 almost definitely could have just done the story with out him uh while still telling the exact same story that they were looking for his child uh you know they could have referred to him they could have had pictures of him but if it was you know he had died 10 years earlier or whatever it was i think the movie probably still could have been the same but i don't think I don't think it, it's a loss for the movie that Harrison Ford is actually in it because I think he actually gives like a really great performance. In fact, I think it's his performance in this is better than what he does in the original. I'm inclined to agree. And I think um, it depends which version of the original you've seen most recently. The last one I saw was the final cut, which I only saw for the first time earlier this year. I'd actually, I had seen the director's cut most of the time, which there's a whole history of those, but the director's mm-hmm. cut was the one from, uh, I believe the nineties, the late nineties. And then the final cut was only, f- was from about five, six, maybe a bit more years ago. Um, and, uh, and, and there's just, it's almost different performances because it really is different footage used. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I think it's also, that goes into a whole other conversation about was Deckard a replicant or is he a replicant, which I don't even know is worth going into now, um, at all, because then, Blade Runner super fans will just shut this off immediately. So, um, but I, I agree, and I think I think it also played off of Ryan Gosling's performance really well too. Mm-hmm. But can I actually? I know this is sort of pivoting a little bit. Speaking of people that could or couldn't be in the film, honestly, I I, I reasonably like Jared Leto. He was not necessary. I think of, of all pieces of the film, I don't think he needed to be there at all. Wallace is on screen a total of three times the character, and it's a bit it's a bit much. Um, I haven't even seen Suicide Squad, but I know it was probably just the same kind of thing as his Joker. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, just too much. And because he didn't do, he didn't really do anything in this movie. It was his kick-ass, uh, attache lady. Mm-hmm. Um, she was incredible. She was a, a massive highlight for me in this movie. And she could have done all the, the heavy lifting as the villain. Um, and I don't think you needed Wallace as this menacing, creepy blind guy that really in my opinion didn't contribute anything and if you're gonna if you're gonna shorten the movie you can really cut his scenes and just have uh, in the in later part have deckard interrogated by um that that other replicant instead yeah but that's just that's my strong opinion <laughs> yeah it's it's tough like i i agree with you there are certain plot points that i think he was sort of crucial for as far as the idea of being a bit of the benevolent creator figure um where it that's not something that his replicant henchwoman would have been able to do because it helped that you needed a kind of human side of the story to be able to do that but if they were to find a way to you can't even say like if you were to remove that part because that's basically the whole purpose of the movie was figuring out uh can replicants uh reproduce 
So like that's where I'm hesitant to say you have to compl- you can have the same movie and completely axe him. Whereas I think you still need that sort of through line of the the replicant creators trying to figure out how to reproduce them. But at the same time, he's he's um, not fully human. He has implants to be able to do a lot of things, partially for his vision, partially to just to do things. Possibly even part part of the implants are to control replicants or at least his replicants so at the same time it's like not human to be honest i think this is this is more my opinion there's a there's a a text at the beginning of the film and it basically just says wallace corporation bought tyrell took over making replicants and made them work um and then there could have been there could have just been a moment instead of that earlier very strange weird moment um where wallace essentially explains they want replicants to be able to have babies on their own because they can't manufacture enough and then that sort of sets the plot the general plot of the movie. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's not going to be, I don't think that, uh, that Villeneuve is the kind of guy who's going to do like Ridley Scott did and just keep making new versions of the same film. Um, I think that it, it is how it is. And I, I definitely prefer Wallace has an idea of a villain than Tyrell was, even though Tyrell really wasn't technically a villain in the first movie. No. Yeah. I think, I think, if, you know, we have to keep Leto's performance in it because that's what we've seen. If you hold up, uh, Wallace to Tyrell, I think there's sort of two sides of a coin of what a creator godlike figure could be. You know, the Tyrell one is the nurturing, loving father. And then the Wallace is the, the benevolent, uh, owner side of things. So I think they, I think when you're analyzing what the characters could be, uh, there's some really interesting stuff to kind of that, that they really could have gone more in depth into, but they really didn't, especially with that runtime where they did clearly go into so much of the backstory and subtle nuances of a lot of the characters. But at the end of the day, Jared Leto's character was basically all exposition and it was all exposition in a movie that relies so little on exposition in the first place. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, it, it, but the, thankfully I think that was the only part of the movie where everything's explained to us except for, except for the one area, obviously big spoiler when, um, Deckard is kind of saved by the, the, rebellious replicants and they and that's very much that that, that character phrase uh, i'm just on the wikipedia page hi i'm a bass who i've seen in a million things and just don't know who she is apparently um just sort of explains what's actually going on and i kind of liked it that way because it was okay this is this is sort of everything that's going on that you're not seeing um which is a big something i've seen written a lot about blade runner blade runner is about a universe where humans have really left earth behind earth is just there um the replicants were made so that they could have off-world colonies and by 2049 it's assumed the off-world colonies are really successful um so earth is just sort of left there but we don't see the off-world colonies we don't see the the glistening cities we just see shitty la and vegas in this case um and, and which I like. So, but I think you're right. I think it was that Wallace was basically just let me explain my villainy in a way. <laughs> and I think the worst part about his exposition was it wasn't even describing what was happening in the movie or the world of the planet. It was trying to describe the thematic elements, the subtext of the movie when it clearly was not necessary at all because. 
uh, I think a lot of, you know, Ryan Gosling's brooding moments and the music and things like that do a far better job of describing how the the characters in this planet feel and think rather than some philosophical bullshit that that Wallace is spouting. Yeah, absolutely. Can uh, we talk can we talk about Ryan Gosling's performance? Yeah, sure. Um yeah, yeah, I get, I guess so because I think when we're talking about the different performances, we can kind of talk a bit more about their plot points as well. Um, uh, Ryan Gosling, I think, is interesting. You know, I, I think through most of the movie, I think he does a really great job. He kind of has a bit of a unnatural creepiness to him, which lends to the fact that he is a replicant, so he's not really human. So it, it almost seems like he's trying to mimic human actions. But by trying to mimic human actions, there's a bit of uncanny valley to him, which I think really works for it. But on the same time, there are moments where uh, I don't think it works for me, his performance. And I and I can't quite put my finger on what it is. I don't know if it's him trying to be the action star at certain points or things like that. But I think definitely the quieter moments are his best moments. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think for for an actor kind of known for not just smiling, but for a very charming, attractive smile, it was it was interesting in a way to see the almost uncanny valley ish nature of like basically stone faced a lot of the time, especially when he was talking to uh, Lieutenant Joshi's boss at the the LAPD. Those were moments I really enjoyed. Of just sort of you can see a million emotions crossing his face, but he has to be the good replicant in front of her. Mm-hmm. Um, Overall, I think I actually think he did a good job. I think he did a better job being the action hero in this than I've seen in some other films. Um, and and I think part of that is because he's just saying I'm a calculated machine and that's what I do. Um, but yeah, I I to be honest, I really I really did like his performance. I agree, there were some strange moments. I think when he started to I guess humanize a little bit, um, more human than human, as Tyrell used to say, um, that that there were some strange moments, especially when he kind of freaked out when he first thought that the memory. Um, he had in the orphanage was his own. Um, and then that it seemed very kind of out of nowhere and then it never came again. At the same time, I like it. I'm kind of, I, I think it, it's still fresh for me. So I'm still sort of thinking about it and it's something I would want to watch for again. Yeah, I, I don't, it, it's so tough. I don't know where I fall on it of if he is the perfect casting choice for this movie. Um, I don't know if there would be someone that's better than him i I, you know i I read a review that talked about that maybe someone like michael fassbender would have been a better choice for his character and that and that maybe would have been so but i think michael fassbender has such an imposing feel to him that i think that ryan gosling's understatedness and smaller frame sort of works for him yeah i think it was i think it was i do think it was well cast i think it was um I, I can't tell if sort of they started the project and they said Ryan Gosling has to do it or if it was like the other way around. They that Ryan Gosling was always a part of it or who knows. There's any number of factors. But I, I do want to kind of change direction to talk about literally every woman on screen in this film because they blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, Anna Darmus's joy was great. Um, my, I already told you in a message that Sylvia Hooks's love, who was the the, the basically the villain, um, was incredible. Um, I love Robin Wright in anything, um, no matter what. So she was great. Lieutenant Joshi. I'm just, I'm literally looking at the list. Even, um, the, the, the memory doctor who we very briefly see, um, she, she, even she, like it was, it was a very creepy, 
which makes a lot of sense when you get to the end of the movie, you understand why it's so creepy in a way, but a very creepy kind of haunting performance. I was just, every time one of these actresses were on screen, I was just so impressed. And it was, it was refreshing in a way. Um, you have Ryan Gosling, who's a huge superstar, and then a bunch of actors who have been in, in a lot of other films, um, but many of the main cast are people you you don't see very often. Um, and and I, I really, I don't know, something about that I liked and I think really worked for this film, much like it worked, I think, for the first film as well, with Harrison Ford being really the only person in that movie. Um, and I guess Edward James almost at that time was also um, becoming quite popular. Uh, or I guess that was around about, about um, uh, Battlestar Galactica, so, so there was that popularity there. Um, but... Uh, yeah, it, it was just yeah, for some reason I just really like that. <laughs> I I agree, and you know I I agree that for the most part I think all of the women in this movie outshone uh, the, the male co-stars uh, with all of their parts. I was a really big fan of Robin Wright's performance. I thought she did a great job, and I thought that her death scene was probably the most uncomfortable one for me um where she had like the glass broken into her hand yeah it was definitely like yeah. extremely unsettling in a movie where there's some not a lot but there are quite a few graphic violent moments uh and this one is not seen on camera at all but like the the sound effects mixed with her performance was was pretty great yeah and with Sylvia Definitely. Hook's performance as well. So, like, the two of them working off of each other, I thought that scene worked really well. Definitely. Um, who was I going to talk about next? Uh, one person that you didn't mention that I thought was really fascinating was uh, Dave Bautista, who we've been mm -hmm. seeing playing Drax in the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, and who's really made a name for himself being this larger-than-life character, one, because he physically is, but two, with this deep, booming laughter and impeccable comedic timing where he looks like he might be, you know, the next big comedy action star in a very very short role uh and i think he absolutely nails it and i'm so disappointed that we only got like the first few minutes of the movie with him because i would have totally loved to see more of him in this definitely and i think uh you're, you're not the only one to say that i really enjoyed it i saw i've seen a ton of reviews that said the same thing i think that it served this the plot well you couldn't have more of him mm -hmm. um and it it adds to the mystery that really sets off the the whole the, kind of the whole plot in the movie but you're right i think he did a fantastic job but i think this was just the kind of role for him to get into more serious um dramatic pieces instead of being kind of leaning into comedy every time yeah like he was in specter did you see specter I did not actually see Spectre. Okay, well, it's not very good, so don't bother. Um, <laughs> okay. But uh, he ha he ba he basically plays the main henchman of the of Christoph Waltz's character, and right. like he has almost no dialogue. He comes on screen and he literally crushes a guy's skull with his bare hands um, silently, and then like gets in a car chase with Bond, and they have like a bit of a fight scene. And it's all right, but like it seems like they. They cast him because he's a giant guy, and that's all. And I think, and it's interesting because I've read some, I read an interesting interview with him where him and his agent have been having a ton of fights because his agent keeps having to reject roles that are offered for him because he doesn't want to just do the leading guy action 
movies. He yeah. wants to do some more serious dramatic stuff or stuff with more layers like he did in this movie. And he's okay, uh, being, you know, supporting actor seventh on the cast list sort of thing as opposed yeah. to being, you know, the next rock. Yeah. And I think I, I'm in a way that I think it's, I'm glad he did this role because I, I hadn't seen him as anything different from Drax. And I love Drax. It's one of the best parts of Guardians of the Galaxy for me, for sure. But, and that will, I think will probably be his signature role for a long time, but he was completely different, like completely different other than obviously punching, but this is, a, this really is an action movie at its core. Um, Although for some reason Google calls it a, a dark fantasy, which is not really the words I would use. Um, yeah, so I think that he he did uh, he did did do a fabulous job there. I think one of the things that probably helps him for being so well known in Guardians is the fact that he doesn't look like what he actually looks like. So the he can be super well known for that by name, but actually seeing him, uh, I know some people you know didn't re- recognize him at first in Blade Runner uh, because he doesn't have you know green makeup on and not pointy ears, but his ears are, are look different and, and as Drax and completely different look for him. Um, so I think that might actually be something that's beneficial for his career that he can kind of do these things and not be instantly recognizable. Yeah, def- absolutely. Yeah. Um, are there any other actors? We we kind of briefly touched on Harrison Ford. Is there anything else you you kind of want to talk about what he brought to the table? Uh, not really. I think like he did a good job. I think he, to be honest, I think he cared more in this movie than in Force Awakens, and I'll probably get a lot of people upset about that but um, I liked his performance in Force Awakens. I thought that that this seemed a little more. I think it felt more natural for him to get into character because it really is. It's Deckard who had to go into hiding for 30 years. And that's exactly what he, what he pulled off. Yeah. I, I don't think it ain't, you're not saying anything blasphemous by saying that he's better. He cares more about this than he does about star Wars. You know, he spent the last 30 plus years basically trying to distance himself from that franchise and very reluctantly came back to force awakens. Whereas this, I think he was really excited by what Villeneuve was sort of bringing to the table. And I think they really sort of lean into his uh, grumpy old man uh, persona that he already has. Yeah. When he's, when Ryan Gosling's asking if the dog is the real, a real dog or not. And he's like, why don't you ask him? I thought that was like one of the the best lines in the whole movie. And the way he just delivers that it's, that's just one of the signature. I don't give a shit you know, comebacks. Absolutely. And I think that like, it's hard to say if that was even in the script. <laughs> uh, and then that was just the, the right response that he was able to give. I do, I, I do want to ch- kind of change gears a bit to talk about another member of the cast, which would be the music for me. Um, I, I'd say that in, this is sort of becoming a Villeneuve thing is just music is so vital to what's happening uh, on screen at the moment. Um, the original Vangelis score of Blade Runner is one of the very, very few movie scores that I just listen to on its own. Um, I'm, I, I, I just love it. I love how it was, how in the new, in the new film, it was interwoven really, really well. Um, there were a lot of those bits of, of the, the love theme and, and the main theme that were kind of worked in, but then still had its own kind of grungy synthy, okay, this is what music right now sounds like instead of this is what music 35 years ago sounds like if they think they're imagining music in the future. And it just, it played so well to everything going on on screen. I just, uh, 
I can only gush about it. I guess I can't really be very, very critical because I just loved it so much. <laughs> no, I, I definitely think it worked well. I think the the score is better in the original, but I think they do a really good job of um, utilizing what came before and also trying to improve on it. So I, I think it kind of works really well together. Um I, I think you know one of the things that you had messaged me you comment I want I want to bring up that I thought was really interesting was the fact that you said that this movie didn't have another chosen one narrative which I thought was interesting because I didn't instantly connect with that like make that connection in my head afterwards but I still was able to articulate it where I really liked how this movie sets you up inserts laying down the breadcrumb trail and you think you're super smart by connecting that ryan gosling is harrison ford's son and then they sort of once once the audience has clicked in then they sort of make it obvious that that's where they're leading you down and then they flip it on its head when they real when they prove that it's not actually ryan gosling uh, is is harrison ford's child it's someone else it's the female um and so i think they do a really good job sort of turning that cliche narrative on its head and I think they had to. I'm, I'm reading that the, the that Hampton Fancher, who's the co-writer of this film, also co-wrote the first one. I have to think this may have been an idea from the beginning because there are little 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 tidbits here and there in the in the original in the first film about Rachel being very different, um, not really being clear that this is something she's capable of because this obviously is is a huge deal that a replicant can can have a child. Um, but then you're right. I, I absolutely like that. It's sort of we. I'd be okay if Kay was the big hero. But then at the end of the day, it's, he's just a part. Actually, I'm stealing this from Reddit, but I, I saw someone on Reddit post this before I saw the film and it's fine. Cause I don't mind being spoiled for film sometimes. <laughs> um, basically saying if, if they did something 30 years later, maybe it's post a replicant revolution. The K will be remembered as a minor historical figure as someone who just sort of helped bring the pieces together, but he's not the person. Cause we're to assume he probably dies at the end. I think that's, that's fairly, it's a lot less ambiguous that he dies at the end than it is about Deckard being a replicant once again. Um, and, uh, and so I think it's interesting that it's sort of, he's just the person who makes sure all the things happen so that other pieces can fall into place. And we can assume within a few years, uh, that there'd be, that there might be a revolution. And I think it's interesting because it, the signs are pointing to that there won't be a sequel, to this film uh, from a financial perspective. And I, that would make me very happy because <laughs> um, I think that the two films go together. I don't think that there, there needs to be more in mm. my opinion. I, I agree. Um, I think there there were a couple things for me that didn't work for this movie. And, and I want to get into it before we kind of talk into more of the technical things, but uh, it's the movie is almost three hours. I like the slow, deliberate pacing, but at the end of the day, I still think this movie was probably about 15 to 20 minutes too long. Uh, did you feel that in any way or were you comfortable with the runtime? I did think that the runtime was definitely a bit too long. And I agree 15 to 20 minutes too long. I think films in general are too long right now. Uh, I think we need to go back to, to good quality 90 to 100 minute films. Um, I think that it was, it was, I, again, I agree. I, I think they did everything on purpose. It was a very intentional film with every decision made, but there were, there were moments of, of lingering. There were some pieces that I think, I mean, if you cut Jared Leto, that, that helps the runtime. Uh, I think it was, it was a bit bloated from a, a, a t- time perspective. 
And I think speaking of Leto's performance, uh, his character, really, I, I disliked how open-ended that was. I think there there seemed to be some confusion between what is open-ended supposed to mean. Open-ended is supposed to mean that you can take what happens in two different directions or, or, or any number of directions. Like, does Ryan Gosling live? Is Deckard a replicant? Things like that where it's kind of up to the viewer to put the pieces together how they see fit. What I do not think is up for interpretation is what happens to Wallace at the end of this movie? It basically just completely falls off and we have no idea what this sort of the continuation is. And you're just sort of left being like, Oh, all right. I, I guess they're going to try to keep finding Harrison Ford or killing him or, or something like they're obviously going to eventually figure out that he's still alive. So that, that sort of bugged me. I think if they were to make a sequel, I think Harrison Ford is done. I think that, the best way to assume is that um, his death was faked and he's just going to disappear. And that's that Um, because I think part of the reason that Wallace wanted Deckard is because they might think he, Wallace even says you, you may have been made for this, but he can't be sure. I guess the, because of the level of sophistication of Rachel as a replicant, it's possible Wallace isn't able to tell. Um, So maybe he thinks Deckard was a replicant and it was the combination of Deckard and Rachel that allowed that to happen. Or Deckard's just a human, and it means and Rachel specifically had the ability to to uh, have a child. Um, I think there there's little tidbits here and there of kind of that are trying to make it so it's easy for us to know what happens to Wallace. We see a moment early on where uh, Love, the Wallace's main replicant, there is talking to a potential client about a sale of, of a lot of replicants. I think to a mine, um, and so I think like and and there's all this this stuff that that happens at the Wallace Corporation that sort of just indicates that business is continuing. And they're just oblivious to the fact that replicants are going to to revolt. And then later, when Love is taking Deckard um, in the air car thing, um, they said they're going home, which we need to we we will assume is off world. So I think that there's an idea for some off world business that's going to happen with that. But I agree that I think that there was it, it wasn't as self contained as the first film because there is this ambiguity. Whereas in the first film, Tyrell is by the end of the first film, Tyrell is like, okay, stuff's going wrong. There's, there's a problem and we need to figure out what it is and deal with it. And then we learn at the, the beginning of this film that there were riots, which we knew was going to happen. Yeah. Uh, I, I agree. And so that sort of hindered it a bit for me where I felt there was too many dangling plots, um, at the end of the day where it just sort of annoyed me in a minor sense where I'm just like, right. I kind of wish it was more wrapped up. Um, because I really dislike when, when stories sort of drop off characters and you the audience is just expected to, to not care what happened to them anymore. Yeah. Um, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of Chekhov's gun. If, if a gun appears, it has to go off. So if a character appears, their story has to be resolved. Like otherwise, why are they there? Um, <clears throat> I guess we, we should, you know, we've been kind of dancing around this whole time, uh, talking about the technical side of things, what this movie really succeeds at and really pushes the boundaries of filmmaking is the cinematography combined with the set design and combined with the CGI. Those three aspects together really ev- elevate this movie from a decent to good movie to a great movie. Absolutely. 
I've been a huge fan of Roger Deakins for a very long time. Um, his work is one of the few where if he's shooting a movie, that makes me want to see it regardless of what else is going on. And the fact that he's been nominated for 13 Oscars uh, with without ever winning is is just an absolute travesty like i'm looking at his imdb page right now and some of his uh nominations where he did not win include fargo oh brother where art thou no country for old men the assassination of jesse james or the coward robert ford uh skyfall prisoners james sicario like all of those movies are instantly recognizable by their cinematography. You think if if I mention any of those movies, there are very specific images or or scenes that are burned into your head. He he worked with Villeneuve on Sicario and Prisoners, but Sicario specifically, you know that car chase scene on the border highway. That yeah. is just so indelible and and very much what Deacons is capable of. And then you also will think of something like Skyfall where he's really playing with light and it's just it's just so beautiful. And I think that's something he really does again in in uh, this movie where his use of light is fantastic. And I think it's interesting too. It's it's I think that as much as you couldn't have a Cone Brothers movie without the Cone Brothers, I think you couldn't have a Cone Brothers movie without him as well. Um, he's basically either as the main cinematographer or been a part of the cinematography for almost all of their films. And you're right. I think that's and it's interesting to me. I didn't realize that um, Villeneuve didn't go with him for Arrival, but went with um, went with someone else. But he's basically worked with Villeneuve as well and made different, very different visual aspects of it. And I think. I mean, it's, it makes me happy that, um, Deakins is also going to be, um, cinematographer for Villeneuve's Dune, which will result in a four hour podcast for me. But, <laughs> um, yeah, I agree. I think it, I think it did do a great job. And speaking of the set design, this has to be probably my favorite set design, um, close to ever. I'm a big fan of, of, of architecture, the use of architecture in film, whether it's real or they create it with CGI or whether it's, they build it for a set. Um, one of my favorite films for set design, and I know this might be a surprise is Tron legacy. Um, they put so much effort, possibly more effort than into the story into the set design and what everything will look like and how the buildings in, in that film are structured. And I think in this, this movie, almost more than the first one, it really built off of the, the, the grimy LA and you see a moment of the Tyrell corporation building, which is so iconic to me in science fiction, but just every moment, no matter where um, K goes or what he's doing, there's such a beautiful structure of how buildings or even in the very rare case we see a dead tree or we see other other very few living things everything is built or created even inside the wallace corporation every room is lit by water overhead that's so opulent and absurd and it fits that space so perfectly and it also follows up on the tyrell corporation kind of aesthetic as well i just i thought that they put so much care into it um into the art department into the set design just and and then it it worked because of deacon's cinematography more than anything but i just i came out of it just floored and there there's visuals when he approaches the orphanage and it's those three domes and i was like how how did they is this real is a cgi is it a model who knows it just looks great Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, I think for me, if they had just sort of, you know, did the, the main LA stuff, that would have been pretty great. But the fact that they could reference the original Blade Runner, it wouldn't be as impressive. What I think really makes the movie's cinematography impressive is when they go to Vegas. So the subtle hints of, 
the fact that it's a nuclear wasteland because they're so close to where, you know, Las Vegas is close to where they do nuclear testing, yeah. uh, where Roswell is in New Mexico. So it's not unthinkable that there was some sort of nuclear accident that completely wiped out that whole New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada area. And when we get to see Las Vegas and how different it is from what LA is shot as, I think that's, that's pretty stunning. Everything is like covered in this thick orange dust in hazy fog. But it like, it really works for it. It adds this weird brightness, but at the same time being dark and dingy. And when you're in the casinos as well, there's that really cool retro futurism that mm-hmm. is different than the retro futurism that they did for LA for the LA stuff. I think it's, yeah, I think it's, it was, it was, that was really well done. I think the use of color in general, we purposely don't see a lot of orange until we get to Vegas. And then we see this beautiful orange haze in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, what I also notice, and this is a big one is you don't actually see the color green except for one time in the movie. And I think I'm, I, I I've only seen it once and it's recent enough that I think it stands out, but there's a moment where it switches to, um, Dr. Staline is the, the memory doctor person and she's like in a forest and it's yes. such, such a massive shift in tone in color in, in vibrancy. Um, and I think now looking back on it, there's a reason for that because it stands out so much. That's the only time you see this vibrant living green because the rest of the world is so dead in a way um, or, or in a more so. But what I will also say about the color and light, what I liked is thinking about like Batman versus Superman, which I find I will find a way to work into every podcast. I think <laughs> at this point, um, it's such a dark movie, but not just in the in the themes and in, in, in shooting things dark and making things look dark. It's actually dark. You can't see anything half the time. This is a dark movie, but you can see everything very well. Uh, and I think that that was done incredibly well, both both in, in lighting design and also I think in, in coloration afterward um, in post-production just to make it so that it's not to say it, both L.A. and Vegas and when he goes out at the beginning of the movie to that that farm like all those pieces are to say this this is a real world this is what you'd see and i think that 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 really works works well for the film mm-hmm. i i agree um and then i think the other thing that that also works well is the sort of combination of cgi with everything else that's going on sometimes impressive cgi can be a bit clunky if it doesn't fit in with the rest of the world or it won't age properly but i think there's a really good marriage where it sort of really fits the world that it's going along with and you know looking back to the special effects in the original blade runner they've held up shockingly well for a movie made in 1982 you know there's these movies where it seems like once every you know five to ten years that we can look back and the special effects have not aged today and in fact still look revolutionary you know yeah. the, the prime example is obviously Jurassic Park the way the dinosaurs still look so great today but yeah. I think that's that's Jurassic Park stands out for the 90s is what Blade Runner is for the 80s oh yeah absolutely I think and I think that that again they captured um, they captured that <clears throat> that aesthetic the, the the kind of the la hologram style um oh it just uh, the cgi is probably the most seamless actually every film i've seen in the last year or so with the exception of a couple the cgi has been incredible and i think they've just gone to a point where it's it's that good i think they wouldn't have been able to do half the stuff they did in this film it's primar- primarily with joy i think overall um if they did it five even five years ago uh there were just so many instances where the 
the, the the color and the shadow of anything that was added CGI really matched what was it what was kind of on film in a way, which is very hard to do. Um, it was done well in Dunkirk as well because there was a lot of special effects in there that were kind of hidden, um, which I really appreciated. Uh, yeah, I think I think it just you whoever was working, I think it really was kind of a team effort of everybody involved in making it just look so good and make it fit the aesthetic really, really well. Um, the, a, a definitely memorable moment there in the, the lounge in that casino in Vegas. And mm-hmm. we see holograms of all, of, of all these different people. And it just seems, it seems right. It seems, it didn't seem like CGI. It felt like a hologram that they, that they had because that it made sense. I thought I thought for the Vegas stuff, which worked is the fact that, you know, it's great that they've got the Elvis, holograms because you know elvis is the king of vegas uh to some people um either him or sinatra or you know depending to some people it might be Cher. um Uh, but I thought what was interesting about the Elvis stuff was it was great that it was like flickering on and off. It kind of had like a really creepy vibe and it was so loud that it kind of made you uncomfortable. Definitely. But there was a weird thing where he was really tall. So it kind of was this weird imposing thing where you can imagine yourself being in the audience and really enjoying this, you know, 12 foot tall version of Elvis dancing on stage. But in the context of no one being there and all the lights are off and him just appearing out of nowhere and looking so giant was really unnerving and kind of made you uncomfortable watching it. Yeah. And I think, it was just, it, it was, I think in some films, you have filmmakers who were like, let's put that idea in, and it's cool. In this film, it actually served the plot. I think everything did, and I think it worked. It did work really well, and it was just, yeah, it was, it was another moment of CGI. There's a later moment where um, Kay is looking at a giant kind of billboard of joy, and the, the, the billboards are interactive, so she comes down and talks to, talks to him, and it's just it just worked. Mm-hmm. It just worked. There's no other way to say it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it's going to be a very hard benchmark for other um science fiction films based on earth in the future which is not actually that common anymore uh to meet to successfully because so many of them are set in space or in a different time or different dimension whatever so it's easier to sort of do whatever but that would be it'd be very difficult this this will be a benchmark to be honest i think this will be a benchmark for this decade yeah i agree and i i think one last sort of cg i think i really want to point out is the moment where uh joy and k go out onto k's balcony and she experiences rain for the first time and when the raindrops hit her it kind of makes the hologram like staticky yeah but the whole time anytime joy is on screen you can sort of see through her she doesn't she hasn't completely opaque or transparent she's kind of somewhere in the middle where if you strain your eyes you can see what's going on behind which i i I sort of appreciate where it's that idea where you could she's supposed to be so real where you can't see through her but because of the technology you could still sort of see through her like she's a ghost and so they're on this terrace and the rain is hitting her and it makes the hologram static and and flutter a little bit uh and then when they're kissing and all of a sudden he gets a call and she completely freezes but the rain is still hitting her and it's it's got like that really interesting vibe for it i think yeah i i agree that was uh, there were a lot of wow moments that was definitely one of them and i think i think it, it it's very very likely this will will win for for a lot of probably a lot of technical things, but um, for visual effects primarily, it was just there was a lot of things never done before, and I think that exact that example is definitely one of them that you never think of, but also has to be so technically difficult 
just yeah. had to be it had to be incredibly challenging to make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I thought it was it was it was just done so well. I agree. I I almost worry, or I don't know if I worry. I I almost wonder if this movie because it came out quite a bit early for Oscar season and the fact that I think some people are still sort of confused by it, um, that it might not, it'll, it'll, it'll get all the nominations that I think it'll get in the technical categories, but I don't know if they'll actually win them. And it'll be the type of movie where it doesn't need to win to sort of go down in history as sort of like a boundary pushing film for all the things that it accomplished, where we can sort of look back and, and point, be pinpoint this movie as uh, the next evolution of cinematography combined with with CGI or, or things like that or, or set design being so breathtaking. It doesn't need to win the award, but we can kind of look back and be like, I can't believe it didn't win. Yeah, and I think I actually think that's okay because a lot of the films that we look back on that we know are so uh, are so important to just film in general, they never win. They barely get nominated. Blade Runner, the original one, got two Academy nominations, and I'm amazed that score didn't get nominated, and it didn't win either. Um, even at the Saturn Awards that year, which is the Science Fiction um, and Fantasy Film and Television Awards, um, it got a ton of nominations, didn't win a thing. So it's you're right, and I think it's funny because I'm thinking back to what's another film this year that will probably sweep a lot of technical categories, and that'll be Dunkirk because the sound in that film was probably the best I have seen and might ever see. Partially because I saw it in IMAX film, I think that helped with it too. But I think that's the kind of thing where you're right, the Academy will gravitate towards this kind of more straightforward film where the technical elements were quite good and maybe overlook Blade Runner because, well, it's sci-fi. And I think some people might take that approach to it, which obviously I don't appreciate, but I I think that's the case. Mm -hmm. I think at the end of the day, this movie sort of symbolizes to me what I wish more blockbusters were and the type of blockbuster that we definitely could have seen, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago as one of the higher grossing movies of the year or one of the big movies of the year. And I I think Villeneuve is really sort of uh, stretching what is a small indie movie what is a thinking person's movie and what is a blockbuster and sort of combining them all together i'm just happy if people are going to the the theater to see things they didn't think they would see that's and i think this is this is one of them i think that there are definitely a few people i've talked to who don't like the first one and still want to see this because all they've heard is good things they've heard it looks amazing sounds amazing everything and i think that villeneuve has a lot of has a kind of a lot of um, goodwill now um, from people, I think he was a. I think he's done. He's made a lot of movies in a very short time, and I think people have kind of warmed up to him. Um, and then, of course, there's going to be those people saying, "Oh, it didn't make all its money back um, for its its main producer, which is Alcon." Um, but I mean, it's made 250 million dollars on a on a roughly 160 million dollar budget. It's not a failure. Uh, and I think that I think you're right. I think that there's the more of the potential to do more with less. Uh, with with films and kind of look to a movie like Blade Runner 2049 and say, okay, we can we can be out there, we can be different, we can just make the film we want to make. Uh, and I and I have to appreciate definitely Sony, um, other than their logo popping up in a few places because there's ads <laughs> all over the movie for companies both existing and not. Yeah. Um, it really seems like they just said make this film, which I I definitely appreciate, and I think that Villeneuve earned that. Um, and, uh, and I hope to see that especially with Dune, but also with more films in the future from, from most of the companies. I think that, that other than Disney, which can pretty much do whatever they want and actually does give 
other than Star Wars, their creators, a lot of uh, carte blanche. Um, there needs to be that opportunity for the people making the films to make the film they want to make. All right. Uh, so then I guess speaking of Villeneuve, I want to pose a question to you. It's sort of a two-parter. Um, has, first part being, has Villeneuve successfully risen to be considered one of, if not the best working director today? And a second part being, Obviously, we know he's working on Dune next, but if you know, you know, you're going to go to the theater and all you know literally is Villeneuve is directing, you don't know who's in it, you haven't seen a trailer, you don't know what the story is, would you go and see that 100% every time? I definitely would, to answer your second question first. Um, I think that uh, in, the, in the early to mid-2000s, Christopher Nolan was that person for me. I knew nothing about the prestige. Um, and I went and saw it because he made it and I loved it. And it's the same, it was the same thing for Inception. I knew a little bit more. Um, and it say it was the same thing. I think that Villeneuve, Villeneuve is definitely not, um, the best, uh, kind of the, 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 the single great director of the moment. And I think that's because people still don't know who he is. Um, Arrival from last year is a science fiction film. Blade Runner is a science fiction film. Dune is a science fiction film. And he loves science fiction. And he sort of carved himself a space for that. Um, he hasn't, uh, he has obviously other films, but they were a lot smaller kind of, um, box office y. Uh, and, and even, and critically, they've all been successful. But I think that there's other people out there that, I, that have a bit more name recognition. Um, I think that he is carving a niche, though, as an incredibly strong. Uh, probably definitely the best science fiction filmmaker right now because he's sticking with it and he's being able to make those films he wants to make, um, which we talked about a bit in the Canadian, in our Canadian, uh, films podcast earlier in this year as well. Um, but I do think, I can't think of anyone right now, obviously off the top of my head, but he is making quite a prolific portfolio. He's made, I think, five films in six or seven years, uh, and all of them have been fairly large films. So, um, but I, I appreciate what he did and I, I, I am going to say I think he's the only person who could have done this. I think nothing against Ridley Scott because he's made a ton of great films throughout his career and, and he still does. Um, I don't think he could have made as successful a sequel to his own film as Villeneuve has. I, I, I think we don't have to look any further than what he's doing to his alien franchise. <laughs> I didn't want to say that. <laughs> like Prometheus was was pretty to look at, but there really wasn't a lot much else to it. And I haven't even seen, what was the newest one called? Uh, Covenant. Alien Covenant, where it looked like, it, it sounded like it was even worse than Prometheus. And, so, I, and I liked Prometheus, but I, I would have liked Prometheus more if he sort of went, kind of went off the rails and tried to just not just forget about the alien franchise and make a just make a another film but that's i mean that's its own its own piece but yeah i think at the end of the day i, I think about someone like spielberg who people still sort of keep in a high regard and he does still make good films and he also makes not great films that nobody really sees or cares much for i finally saw the bfg for instance and it was fine <laughs> it's a book i grew up with and i liked it and i think the choice of spielberg was sort of a Disney saying, okay, let's just give this to someone who understands movies that are kid friendly. And then I'm worried about a, a film like Ready Player One coming next year, which is it basically bad. It looks bad. And I, I do love the book and I, and I'm very worried about it. And I think Spielberg is sort of just, he was pretty much hired because the book is essentially about his films anyway. Um, so yeah. where, so whereas I think someone like Villeneuve, I think he's the kind of person that we're going to see a lot out of him and then he might just completely change gears and it's going to be for the better. Yeah. I, I, I'm ready to like, Canadian directors Mount Rushmore I like I think he absolutely deserves a spot up there too. definitely all right I I think we talked about a lot you know I was only expecting this to be about 
a half hour, maybe 40 <laughs> minutes, and we're almost at an hour now, so that's pretty uh, pretty good. There was definitely lots to say, and I think if we even wanted to, we could probably even keep talking about it for another hour and maybe even three hours, actually surpass the runtime of Blade Runner 2049. <laughs> like I said, wait until the Dune podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I feel like what I'll do is I'll set you up with my father, who is a big Dune fan, and now loves Denis Villeneuve as well, so I think I'll just let the two of you hash everything out and uh and and see what happens for that perfect and all you have to do is press record right yeah (laughs) easy for me i'll just sit in the background and uh figure out what i need to edit around exactly (laughs) uh so thank you so much for listening everyone if you saw blade runner liked it didn't like it uh let me know you can uh follow me on twitter at dgapa also send me an email dakota at liveandlimbo.com make sure you check out liveandlimbo.com where the show notes are going to be uh i want to thank you sammy for for joining me it's always a pleasure having you on and this definitely will not be the last time as we talked about we're probably gonna talk about i did we talk about this online or maybe we just talked about this offline we're going to be doing an episode uh in the near future about justice league and some other things going on around with it so not just specifically about that movie so if you don't care for that movie you don't have to worry about skipping that episode but thank you for coming on again sammy yeah my pleasure i love just talking about movies (laughs) it's just a coincidence that i'm recording this and posting it on the internet yeah well exactly it just works out well (laughs) (laughs) i agree uh so thank you so much for listening and have a great day